Today's scripture reading is from Philippians chapter 3, verses 4b through 11. Philippians chapter 3, verses 4b through 11. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. As to the law, a Pharisee. As to zeal, a persecutor of the church. As to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness of God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Indeed, Lord, this is the word of the Lord. And that is an awesome statement. An awesome truth. So speak it now. Open it. For the sake of your people. You love your people vastly more than any of us loves your people. And your word is a gift, immeasurably great. And so speak your love through your word to your people. Build their faith. Glorify your name. Advance your mission. Strengthen this great church. Impact this city. Create a light in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Every one of you were created to know and to admire and to enjoy the greatest greatness in the universe. That's why you were made. That's why you exist. You were made to know and admire and enjoy the greatest greatness, settling for nothing less than the greatest of the great. Your heart was made to enjoy and admire the greatest greatness, that is, the greatness and the beauty of Jesus Christ, the creator of the universe. That's why you exist. And sin came into the world. And sin is the opposite of your knowing and admiring and enjoying Christ above all things. Sin is the enjoyment of alternative values more than Christ. All sin whatever practical nature it has, flows from a preference of something more than Jesus. 
So sin wrecked your life. It wrecked your heart. It is deceiving you every day that there are greatnesses greater than the greatness of Jesus to be enjoyed and admired. And therefore, there is suffering in the world. And it is in the world by God's design. God subjected this creation to futility. That's God's doing. The miseries of this world are owing to God's opinion of sin. Therefore, God has ordained that your enjoyment, your admiration, and your knowledge of the greatest greatness, namely Jesus, comes through suffering especially. That's the point of this message. I want to talk for a few minutes about your preparation for suffering. Because you will. You have. I don't preach on this because you are unfamiliar as a church with that topic. I know your pastor. I know some of your history. I don't preach on this because they need to know this and they don't. I preach on this because it's true and it's biblical and it can hardly be said too much and because the state of the world in which we live means that it's going to get harder, not easier. Russia didn't move into Crimea because things are going to get easier. The collapse of culture Christianity in America didn't happen because things are going to get easier to be a Christian. Suffering is going to be what it always has been, normal. Therefore, all churches should very soberly and joyfully prepare to suffer. So this is a message to just do a little bit of that. And the Bible gives so many helpful reasons for suffering that should encourage us. They're meant to make us strong in the midst of suffering. In every high and stormy gale, my anchor holds within the veil. Really? Does that image even mean anything to you? Anchor in a veil. Weird. <laughs> That's Hebrews. You've got to study this. You've got to know these things for even songs to help you, right? Anchor in a veil. Go find that. Anchor's at the bottom of the ocean. Not in a veil. <laughs> the weird biblical image. Glorious biblical image. I preached a whole sermon on anchors that go up. Not down. I love the Bible. So... Among those many reasons and among those many purposes that the Bible gives you for your suffering that are meant to strengthen you in it when it comes is one I like to call the intimacy factor. 
If you are made to know and admire and enjoy Jesus, and because of sin, you are in battle every day in the doing of that, so that you have to work to see him that way, then one of the functions of suffering is to crush that sin in our lives and make Christ more beautiful. Which is, in fact, what it does for God's people. Suffering should not be a surprise to us because of the Bible's relentless help to tell us it's normal. Acts 14.22, Paul did discipleship in the churches he had just planted, and one of the things, Christianity 101, was through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom. He said that to every church that he planted. Through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom. If you've led anybody to Jesus, if you're dealing with any baby believer, tell them that quick and often. Through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom. There's no other road. Or, Jesus, if they persecuted me, they will persecute you. Timothy, Paul to Timothy. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Peter, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal that is among you as though something strange were happening to you. It isn't strange. It's normal. In America, it's the new normal because we've been in an abnormal for 300 years. So take it as a biblical truth. The more earnestly you seek to be the salt of the earth and the light of the world and to reach the unreached peoples and expose the works of darkness, the more earnestly you pursue this, the more you will suffer. Satan will see to it, and God will gloriously design it that you may know and admire and enjoy the greatest greatness in the world for which you were made and short of which there is no satisfaction in your soul, no matter what you try to put in there. So there are a lot of reasons why the Bible explains that we have suffering, and one of them I call the intimacy purpose or the intimacy factor that through suffering we are meant to know him, admire him, and enjoy him more. And it does work that way. And if you're old enough in Christ, you know it works that way. Little children probably don't, don't know this. They have to take this on faith. But if you're my age or a lot younger, you, you, you know this. You know that when suffering enters your life, you're either gone and you're going to commit apostasy and leave Jesus or he becomes more precious. You see him more clearly. Funerals. Blow the clouds away and you stand on the brink of eternity as no other moment and you see what you have not seen for many years. You know this. Jerry Bridges, one of my favorite people, just because he suffered so much and has written so well about it. 
one of his earlier books, Trusting God Even When Life Hurts, shows how the dynamic works. It's not surprising to me that a person like Jerry Bridges would be among the people in our day who have most sweetly, most tenderly, most deeply, most wisely written about the glories of Jesus in the midst of suffering because when he was 14, he heard his mother cry out from the next room and he arrived in the room to watch her take her last breath. That's pretty significant for a 14-year-old. And then the Lord ordained that he would have physical conditions that kept him out of all sports as a young man. Today, I was sitting with him about a year ago, and he'd just come through some surgery. He's about five inches shorter than he used to be. because of his back surgery. And when you read his books, you realize, this is sweet. What he serves me concerning Jesus, just before he wrote that book, Trusting God, his wife died of cancer. Sweetly remarried now. The people that have gone deepest, tasted most sweetly, written most helpfully are the people and the pastors and the small group leaders and the moms and dads who have tasted it. Not the breezy people. Not not just the smiley people. They're not helpful very much in times of need. Horatius Bonar wrote a book. He lived over a hundred years ago, Scottish pastor, hymn writer. The book was called Night of Weeping or When God's Children Suffer. And in it he said this was his goal, to minister to the saints, to seek to bear their burdens, to bind up their wounds, and to dry up at least some of their many tears. It's a tender, it's a deep, it's a wise book, The Night of Weeping. So it's not surprising to hear him say this. It is written by one who is seeking, he's talking about himself in the third person, one who is seeking himself to profit by trial and trembles lest it should pass by as the wind over the rock leaving it as hard as ever. But one who would in every sorrow draw near to God that he may know him more and who is not willing to confess that as yet he has known but little. So Bridges and Bonar show us that suffering is the path to a deeper, sweeter, more satisfying admiration of and enjoyment of the greatest greatness in the universe, Jesus Christ. I've always wondered how I will do on my deathbed or if I were called upon to die for Christ in some kind of persecution way. And 
Here's a passage, here's a verse from 1 Peter that has been amazingly comforting to me. It's 1 Peter 4.14. It goes like this. If you are insulted or reproached for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. Can I extrapolate from that? Well, if that's true for reproach and insult, surely it would be true for death. Right? Could I, can I not say, if you are called upon to die for the name of Christ, you will be blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. Here's what I think that means. I think that means that for every kind of suffering that comes into the life of a believer on the path of obedience, there is a, a resting of glory and a resting of the Spirit for that. You won't be alone. God won't be standing back like this and saying, I wonder if he's going to keep his faith now. God doesn't do that. The spirit of glory and of God comes over the bed. That's awesome. What do you think that will taste like? Spirit of glory and of God resting upon you. That will be a taste of the greatest greatness that you've never had before. You think it will be worth it? You've heard Job preached in this church. Job was a godly man, right? He was a godly man. He was a good man. And he came into significant suffering. And the reason was so that he would say, I have heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye has seen you. The difference between knowing Christ in prosperity and knowing Christ in adversity is often the difference between hearing and seeing. Inferring and tasting. Like you're going to get a jar of honey and infer from the label, the color, the viscosity, that's honey. Or you can open it and do that and say, that's honey. The difference between knowing God in prosperity and knowing him in adversity is often the difference between inferring and tasting. Or Job says, I have heard of you with the hearing of the ear. Now my eye has seen you in my darkness. The intimacy factor in our suffering, Stephen. We are going to get to the text. You're used to exposition here. <laughs> and this is all introduction. Half the sermon is introduction. It's okay. It's Bible. Stephen. I'm named after Stephen. John Stephen Piper. I love Stephen. I want to be like Stephen. He preached to the synagogue and they were enraged. They ground their teeth at him. 
In about an hour, they will kill him. And between that, they're just about to drag him out of the city, and something happens. Acts 7.55 says, Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. That was a gift. That was a gift. And he needed it because he was going to die with stones smashing his skull because he had told the truth. And the natural man, the sin that is in the world, rises up and say, No! I will not let this happen. This is unjust. I do not deserve to be treated like this. That's what sin says. It's true. In order to die well, he needed to taste and see he's glorious. And God gave him what he needed. And he'll give you what you need. He will. Might not be just like that, or it might be like that. And it will be worth it to walk with him through whatever you've walked. So here we are at the text. All that by way of introduction. About the intimacy factor and the role of suffering in helping you know, admire, enjoy the greatest greatness in the universe, namely Jesus Christ. Now, here's the text, and I have three simple observations from the verses that were read. Philippians 3, uh, 4 to 11. Observation number one, and it's going to fill up almost all the time, and then two quickies at the end. Observation number one, Paul's preparation to suffer. How did he do it? Number two, Paul's suffering. Number three, Paul's aim, hope, dream, passion, desire in suffering, through suffering. Those are the three things that I see here. So let's go to number one. Paul's preparation to suffer. I'm at verses five and six. You know this list, don't you? He's listing off his distinctives that as an unbeliever, he really enjoyed. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. That's a pedigree which in the Jewish culture was simply awesome. And when you got a good pedigree, you strut your pedigree, you get the praises, and you bask in the pleasures of the admiration of being a man with a pedigree. Mm, mm. Feels so good. Feels so good. This is satisfying. I've got a pedigree, and people know it. That's, that's the unbeliever's satisfaction. In, that's the Paul. And then he adds, verse, at the end of verse 5, i got three other things that make my life glorious. I am Pharisee. And there are no better law knowers and law keepers than Pharisees. And I'm outstanding. It said in another place, I have exceeded all of my kinsmen in this. Oh, he had a lot going for him. 
His total reputation. And zeal-wise, I took on the church, this renegade sect that's undermining what I've lived for, calling this crucified criminal the Messiah. What a blasphemy. And I'm taking it on from city to city and bringing it down. That's who I am. That's my identity. Has anybody got a zeal? I've got a zeal. The rest of you cowards are afraid to take it on. I'll take it on. Oh, meaning, significance, purpose in life. Yes. And then he said, with regard to righteousness in the law, blameless. I think... Paul was, by and large, free in his conscience. I know a lot of people try to say, oh, his conscience was killing him all the time because of this and that. I said, I'm not sure of that. He said, I was blameless. He was blind, but he was blameless in his eyes. Now, he meets Christ, Acts chapter 9, on the Damascus Road. And suddenly, his world collapses. He was getting his meaning from a a zeal... An allegiance to the law as he understood it. A passion for God as he understood it. And at the core of it was the the opposite Jesus, crucified, pretender, criminal, rightly executed. And people saying he's the Messiah. And there he was. Alive with a glory so bright, a greatness so great, it blinded Paul. And all he could do was listen. Why do you persecute me? And his life was over. How at that juncture did he prepare himself to suffer? Verse 7. He said, whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. That's what he did. He looked at his life and all that list, all that pedigree, all those achievements, all that reputation. He said, now I will regard that as loss. I will regard that as loss. In other words, I have now consciously reversed, turned upside down my value system. This is how you prepare to suffer. You turn upside down your value system. So, before he was a Christian, he had a, he had a ledger. Alright? Loss column, profit column. 
gain. Gain loss. Two columns. Over here in the column of gain, profit, was Hebrew of Hebrews. Astonishing pedigree. Pharisee, zeal, blameless, off the charts. What a gain column he had. And over here in loss was this horrible opposition and the possibility that, that Christ Jesus might be the Messiah, and that's not going to happen. And then he meets Jesus, and what does he do? He takes out a big red pencil. And on this gain column over here, he writes L-O-S-S. And over here in the Jesus column, G-A-I-N. And everything is reversed in his life. Has that happened to you? That's what it means to become a Christian. Right? Matthew thirteen forty four, shortest parable. The kingdom of heaven is like a man who found a treasure hidden in a field. And in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has. Counts it as loss that he might have the treasure. It was just a field before, just walking through a field on his way to his treasure. And he stumbles over King Jesus in glory. It's full of diamonds. It's full of gold. Full of silver. God opened his eyes. And now, everything else, lost. Then your mind makes that transition. Your mind considers it that way. This is how you prepare to suffer. You get up in the morning and you consider it that way. That's what he says. I consider. I, I regard it. I, I consciously, mentally am looking at all the goods in my life and regarding them compared to Jesus as lost. They're in the lost column and Jesus is in the gain column. And if you think, well, that was just Paul. He says in verse 17, brethren, join in imitating me. Join in my example. This is normal Christianity. Every believer. Jesus said, Luke 14.33, No one of you can be my disciple who does not renounce all that he has. Period. No one, I'll say it again, this is Luke 14.33, No one can be my disciple who does not renounce all his possessions. Now, you've got clothes on, probably got a car out in the snowy parking lot, might have an apartment or a house, and other possessions. You probably have an iPhone or computer. So you own things. And this text says you can't be a follower of Jesus if you don't renounce those. So you can check out different translations on that word. Wouldn't that be the same as Paul saying, count them as loss? So, this is mine, right? I think my wife bought it for me. This is mine. This is my coat. This is mine. This is my preaching coat. 
And I should count this as loss. Because of the surpassing value of knowing Jesus. What would that mean? What would that mean practically? To regard everything in your life as loss compared to Jesus. For the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus. I'll give you four things that I think it means. Because that's what you should be asking right now. You say, okay, I hear the words. I hear the words. I'm supposed to renounce everything I have. And I'm supposed to regard everything as loss. I'm supposed to have this reversal of values. Practically, I'm going to get in my car. I'm going to eat the food in my fridge. I'm going to put on my shoes and slippers. Practically, what? Number one. These are just bullet points that you can think about. They're worth a chapter in a book. It means that whatever I'm called upon to choose, whenever I'm called to choose between anything in Christ, I choose Christ. If it doesn't happen for everything in your life, you don't have to choose between Christ and everything. But if you do. You, you have in your mind, if I must choose between car and Christ, computer and Christ, wife and Christ, life and Christ, the steadfast love of the Lord is better than life. I choose Christ. That's the first thing it means. That's a, that's a resolution in your mind. You have put in loss, you've written loss over everything in the sense that if you must choose, you choose Christ. Number two. It means I would deal with all the things in the world. I will deal with all the things in the world in a way that draws me nearer to Christ through them or I won't deal. How you doing with videos? Spending. I regard everything as loss in comparison with Christ, number two, in the sense that as I wear my coat, drive my car, watch a video, I will deal with this in a way that draws me more to Christ, not less to Christ. If the video undermines the pure, sweet fellowship with Jesus, rather than enhancing it, stop Watching them. I'm appalled at what Christians do for entertainment by taking it for granted that if it's in the theater, it should be watched. I'm appalled. Not because I'm a prude. I have my favorite movies. But because I am ruined by certain scenes. I won't watch certain good movies because of that scene. I will not because Christ is dishonored in my soul and my mind is contaminated for months. And he's more precious than the pleasure of the other 124 minutes. Come on, let's be Christian through and through. Let's get ready to suffer. If we can't deny ourselves a little bit of entertainment that the world assumes we must have, 
in order for us to know and admire and sweetly and more deeply enjoy constant fellowship with our Jesus, how are we going to face the stampede of horses when they come? That's number two. Use everything to enhance your enjoyment of Jesus. And if it doesn't enhance it, don't do it. Number three. It means that I always deal with things in the world in a way that shows the world they're not my treasure. How do you do that? Well, figure that out. The world is watching you at work as to what is his treasure. There are ways. Read, read 1 Corinthians 7 on this where Paul talks about doing business in the world and and being married and other ways as though we were not. That's pretty provocative. Be married as though you were not. Do business as though you were not doing it. Buy things as though you had no possessions. This is crazy, wonderful Christianity. Using a car, using a coat, using a computer in such a way that people around you assume that's not his treasure. He uses it, and he has treasures, but that's not his treasure. Number four, it means that I will lose any or all things that the world can offer without losing my joy. If by force... Or by circumstance or by choice, any precious thing is ripped out of my hand, person or product, anything ripped out of my hand, it will not destroy my joy because Christ is my all. Those are the four things I think it means to to renounce all that you have, to count everything as loss, to experience this reversal that prepares you to suffer well. Verse 8, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. Why is that? Why is Paul's counting of all things as loss a preparation to suffer? How is it a preparation to suffer? Because suffering is a taking away of things that offer us benefit and pleasure and satisfaction. Right? What, what, if you said, what is suffering? What's the definition of suffering? Well, suffering is the removal of something that was giving you pleasure. It might be your health. It might be your wife. It might be your job. Child. Something was present in your life. It was precious. It was good. It wasn't sinful. It was bringing you joy. Suffering is the taking. Taking. Take health. Take family. Take job. That's what suffering is. So reputation, esteem among peers, job, money, spouse, sexual life, children, Friends, health, strength, sight, hearing, 
Success taken away. How do you get ready for that to happen? Count them as loss already. That's it. That's the way Paul got his life ready to be imprisoned every other weekend. To have his back lacerated with 39 lashes five times. I cannot imagine what his back looked like. I sometimes wonder if Paul's thorn in the flesh was a back that was so stiff with scars he couldn't stand up straight. So you write a big red loss over that column in your life. It's not an evil column. Sin ought to be loss. But everything, he says, I count everything, everything as loss because of the surpassing value of knowing Jesus. If you count it as loss in relation to Jesus, then when suffering takes it, you'll be ready. You'll be ready for what? Point two, the first observation was Paul's preparation for suffering in this text. Second observation is very, just one minute, uh, Paul's experience of suffering. So here we are in the second half of verse eight. For whom, that is Christ, I have suffered the loss. Not I count them as loss. I've suffered the loss. Paul is really losing things. He he has so devoted his life to lose everything that he's actually experiencing it. Things are being taken away from Paul over and over again. He walks into suffering voluntarily. Remember, he said on his way to Jerusalem, he said, don't go, don't go. It's dangerous. It's a hotbed of people who hate you. And he said, would you stop crying and breaking my heart? The Holy Spirit testifies to me that I must suffer in every city. When we're told, you and me, that we're going to suffer there, we don't go there. We don't go there. What a life he was called to live. He chose to go into synagogue after synagogue after synagogue, knowing there would be a few believers and the rest would hate him and kick him out or even do worse. Wow, I want to be like this man. I really want to be like this man. I love Paul. So he experienced suffering. Finally, number three. Paul's goal or purpose or longing, desire, aim in suffering. Let me just rivet your attention in answer to this question on um, what he says in verses 7 through 10. Because he leaves us no doubt. So let me give you the, before I close with, with the answer, let me just give you the big picture again. All of you, indeed every person on the planet, was created to know and love and admire and enjoy the greatest greatness in the universe. You weren't made for anything small. And the greatest greatness in the universe is the greatness of the maker and redeemer of the universe, Jesus Christ. 
There is nothing and no one greater. You're made for that. Sin came into the world and turned everything backwards and made us love the lost column. Mmm, reputation of men. Mmm, Pharisee of Pharisees. Mmm, zeal and significance. Pride. And then Jesus comes into the world and because of sin, he brings himself to us through suffering. So Paul's answer to the question, why why are you preparing to suffer like this? What's your goal? What's your aim? He says it, I don't know how many times, half a dozen. Let's just read them. Verse 7, I counted them as lost for the sake of Christ. What does he mean by that? Verse 8, I count all things to be lost because of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. In other words, he senses, he knows, he's tasted it on the Damascus Road and in every synagogue. He's tasted, I know my supremely valuable Christ as I lose more and more of the world. Second half of verse 8. For him, I have suffered the loss of all things. Last part of verse 8. I count them as rubbish that I may gain Christ. That may be the clearest one of all. I count them as rubbish that I may gain Christ. Well, didn't he already have Christ? Yes, he did. He says in verse 12, I press on to make it my own because Christ has already made me his own. It wasn't wobbling in insecurity here. He was saying, I want him all. I want everything he has to give me. I'm not eager for a half Christ or three-fourths of a Christ or a modest experience of the greatness of Christ. I want a great experience of a great Christ. There's so many believers just totally, it seems, satisfied with such mediocre walk with Jesus, such small tastes of His greatness. Don't be like that. Don't be like that. Verse 9, that I may be found in Him. Verse 10, that I may know Him. Keep going. That I may know the power of his resurrection. Keep going. That I may know the fellowship, fellowship, sweet fellowship of his sufferings. Keep going. That I may be conformed to his death. Keep going one more time. In order that I might attain the resurrection of the dead. Why would you want that? So that I can be with him forever in a body like his glorious body that we might now actually enjoy human bodily fellowship with the creator of the universe. In a body. In other words, what sustains Paul in suffering 
in the loss of more and more is the confidence that in losing those things, he gets more of Christ. Now, through taste, and finally, in the resurrection. Verse 8 again. In view of the surpassing value of knowing, knowing the greatest greatness, Jesus Christ. So, get ready to suffer because it's coming. Already has come. Why should you get ready to suffer? Because of the intimacy factor. God has ordained that you will know him and know his son in a way more deeply, more sweetly, more satisfyingly, more amazingly, more wondrously through suffering than any other way. So may the Lord open our eyes to his surpassing greatness and cause us to write just a big red loss column across everything so that we don't throw it away and we don't despise his gifts. We use them in such a way that they're not our treasure and they take us deeper with Jesus. Let's pray. Father, there's no doubt that all of us will suffer we're all going to die if Jesus doesn't come back first. Life is serious. It's not breezy. Sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. We are a happy people, the happiest on the planet, because our happiness cannot be taken away by anything. So grant this people at College Park Church to be unshakably strong in what they face individually, and corporately for the glory of Christ and the joy of their own souls, I pray in his name. Amen. As the pastors who are charged with the care of your soul, we want to prepare you for moments in lifetime that will come when you will be able to see difficulties and be able to say things like this. He is no fool or much enticed who loses everything but Christ. And it won't be long until the rod becomes the tender kiss of God. It is one thing to believe God and cherish Him when it is easy. It is another that in the midst of hardship to say, Oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unscrutable are His ways. But from Him and through Him and to Him are all things including cancer and marriage issues and job loss. It's easy to say that when things are good. It really matters when they're really hard. And that, that idea is what Pastor John helped me with years and years ago. And it is so helpful, hopeful, and I hope will be the undergirding reality of our life as a church. Because at the end of the day, that's why your theology matters. When the bottom drops out, that's when a big view of God really matters. So hear the word of the Lord. For from Him, and through Him, and to Him are all things. To Him be glory forever and ever. Amen. There'll be some folks up after here, words here, would love to pray with you if something's going on in your life. God bless you, church. I love you so much. Thanks for coming today. You're dismissed.